0: This, this past um, six weeks or so, we've had a couple different events and they are a direct result to a brainstorm session that we had at the end of October. And we thought about different activities where we could go out and bless people in the communities where we live and work and play. And so two of those events that we did were, and my prayer was like, like, like three of them. We just make three of them happen sometime in the next six months and two of them did. One of them was Broomball at the Cupertino Ice Center which was great, which is super fun. Um, There were um, some injuries, unfortunately, (laughs) but um, it was still really fun um, and enjoyable, and people invited friends. Um, And then we also did a Christmas caroling event um, that happened at Wendy's Hospital, and the hospital that she works at, where it was a blessing to the kids that were there. And so I just wanted to give a shout-out to um, Grace and Nick Fong for helping put both of those together. Because I think that was a lot. Um, Nick, 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 and Joel put together the broom ball, and then Grace uh, put together the uh, caroling event. So that was awesome. That's so neat to be able to execute. Because my my fear in doing any kind of um, brainstorm is that you wouldn't execute on any of the ideas. And so, praise God that we're able to have some of that momentum and do some of those things over. Um, the next six weeks. Okay. Yeah. Execution is hard. Like ideas are cheap execution, like actually doing things is hard. Um, and so look forward to more of those kind of events, um, in the new year. Um, I also want to acknowledge it's a little bit cold today and I've been watching some videos from this guy called the liver King. Has anyone heard this guy? He's like a YouTuber that does things. One of the, he has like, he's kind of a sight to see bearded, never has a shirt on, super muscular. Um, and so he has like these seven ancestral tenants, and one of them is about being cold. Like it's good to be cold. And so I just want to like make that kind of a Christ connection. Like it's good to suffer, and it's good to be cold, and you're choosing to be cold today. You chose this. You chose discomfort today, and you didn't have to. And so I just want you, as you um, are sitting there kind of freezing, to be like, you're fasting, you're fasting from warmth. So let that kind of fast, like draw you closer to God today as you're shivering. And if it tempt, because it will tempt you to be distracted and to only focus on how cold you are. Let that be an encouragement, just like hunger, um, to focus on the words um, that I'm saying or what God wants to tell you, which hopefully is aligned with the words that I'm saying um, or the songs that we sing. And on that note, um, I wanted to talk—I just wanted to say a couple words. We just finished Job, and one of the themes that kind of came through in that was the compassion and mercy of God um, in the midst of suffering. And if you look in the book of James, which we didn't get to talk about, it references Job, and towards the end of that reference, it says, uh, keep in mind, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job. This is James 5.11. Um, Behold, we consider blessed those who remain steadfast. And it's talking about suffering— you have heard of the steadfastness of Job and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And we don't normally associate suffering and steadfastness with God's compassion and mercy, but that's actually the association that James gives. And if you look at toward the end of Job, that's also what Job experiences himself. He experiences the compassion and mercy of God, even in the midst of suffering and particularly in God. And we don't normally think of it as about this, but Mo was saying, like God revealing Himself, like God, He's got. Uh, Job is able to see God face to face, speaking out of the whirlwind, and that is compassion and mercy that Job gets to receive. And so, I'm um, speaking about suffering. Um, some of some of you uh, are going to be entering into what a lot of us can consider like a season of suffering because you're going to see family, and for that brings a lot of uh, different emotions. And so, I just want to acknowledge that um, the holidays can be difficult. And they can be, represent a whole bunch of extremes. And I think really, ultimately, family is kind of a mixed bag, right? It's really kind of a mixed bag. You have definitely joys that are associated with seeing family and relatives. And there are also some lows. And they actually kind of come from a very similar things. Because part of what makes someone enjoyable to be around and also what makes someone painful to be around is your shared history. And for the people that you enjoy, it's because you have a shared history of positive memories and experiences and images. And for people you don't enjoy, it's the shared history of negative experiences and pain and disappointment and resentment and even betrayal. And so, what I wanted to examine today is a scripture from 2 Corinthians that looks at what it's like to rewrite history. What does it mean? To rewrite history. And what does it mean to make sense of someone's history in particular um, in light of the resurrection, light of the death and resurrection of Jesus. So if you guys turn with me, I'm going to open up in, in my phone too, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Okay, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I'm going to be reading from verses 11 to 17. And actually, maybe this will help to warm us up a little bit. Could you stand with me? Um As I read, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 11 to 17. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not what is, a, what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of God, for the love of Christ, controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You may be seated. So I have three um, points that I want to make today from this passage. You know, you've got to have three points. Fear of the Lord as motivation is first. The love of God as motivation is number two. And then lastly, death and second birth. And so in talking about uh, love, fear of the Lord as motivation, I want to give kind of the context for 2 Corinthians. This letter is written in the context of suffering. It's, all, it's also about affliction and the glory of, glo- of God in affliction. And so in chapter one, Paul um, defends his apostleship and talks about, you know, in light of that theme of suffering, how God, how God brings comfort. He comforts us all in our affliction so that we, this letter to the Corinthians, all the Corinthian followers of Jesus may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. And so this is kind of a spiritual principle that anything that we receive from God, we are able to give to others. And then in chapter four, um, in chapter in chapter two and three he talks about the superiority of the new covenant in the spirit, and that because of the new covenant we do not lose heart, and then he makes a distinction between those who believe and those who don't. So there are distinctions in scripture, and then in four or four he talks about the gospel being veiled, and how that it is now, it is about being proclaiming Jesus as Lord, and then Paul gives this interesting image, and this will relate to this passage as we talk as we uh, go into chapter five. Um, about having treasures in jars of clay, okay? And this, this idea of having a treasure in a jar of clay is that our bodies are this jar of clay and they're fragile and they're temporary and they're easily broken. And so Paul is painting a picture for us that all of us live in these bodies that are unimpressive in every way. And if you look today at the church, if you look today within our families, you see brokenness, you see fragility, you see all the different aspects of what clay represents. But what Paul is saying is that this uh, being this jar of clay, being in the body, is meant to be your your receptacle. Okay, It's actually, that's not the point. The clay is not the point. The fragility is not the point. It's meant to be transparent. You're supposed to see through this treasure. You're supposed to see through the jar and into the treasure so that the treasure is made visible. And so in like 4.11 through 12, for instance, it says, for we who live are always being given, are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. And what's kind of his point there? He's saying, hey, look, these, cl- these clay jars are completely unimpressive, but the reason they're unimpressive is so that they highlight even more so the majesty of who God is. And I think this is a really, really um, radical idea because for a lot of us, when we look at the church, especially today, all we see is clay. (laughs) It's only clay and it's only brokenness and it's only brittle. That's all we see. And yet that's actually the opposite of what Paul sees and what he's asking us as believers to see. He's asking us, would you see the treasure that's in the clay? And would you not only see that in others, but you, would you recognize that that's you? And then anything that's weakness, he calls death, would that bring glory? Would that, bring, would that manifest the life that Jesus has? And that theme is going to be further explored as we get into chapter 5. Okay, Because he says, take courage during earthly affliction because of, heavenly, of the heavenly dwelling. That's in the beginning of 5. And now Paul's painting a new picture where he's talking about an earthly tent as opposed to a heavenly dwelling. And a tent, and I think the guys for this men's retreat will be in a tent. A tent is temporary, okay? A tent is temporary. Like it's really, it's a temporary shelter. It's really not meant for any kind of permanence. And it actually doesn't, well, we'll find out. I don't think it's going to do a great job keeping us warm, okay? I don't think, I think we're going to be quite cold um, in these tents. Um, Because again, they're temporary, Um, And that analogy that Paul is making is about our bodies. Our physical body are kind of like a tent. They are a temporary shelter, just as the jar of clay. So he's painting this motif about the temporariness of um, this dwelling. And he's saying, hey, look, but we have a better dwelling, a heavenly dwelling. And that heavenly dwelling is the home that we are meant for. And up up until then, we live in these tents, these temporary shelters that are our bodies, our physical bodies, because we're looking forward to a heavenly dwelling. And that's what you focus on. And so in verse 10, it talks about the fear of the Lord, or talks about judgment, and how that will we'll receive what is due for us on the judgment day of the Lord. Okay. And then in verse 11, it examines, um, it says, therefore, in light of the fear of the Lord. And so let me say that fear is specifically talking about judgment. And that fear is in terms of what we are due. And a lot of us can read that in light of thinking, okay, due must mean our actions or our behavior. And I wouldn't necessarily eliminate that, but the focus of the beginning of chapter five is where do you put your focus on? Are you looking forward to the earthly tent or are you looking forward to the heavenly dwelling? And so the way I read what's due is it means you're going to receive the consequence of what you have been yearning for. If you've been yearning for the earthly tent, well, that's what you're going to get. That's, that's the limit of what you're going to get. That's all you're going to get. But if you're yearning for the heavenly dwelling, if you're learning for resurrection, if you're learning for Christ in heaven, then that's what you will receive. And judgment's going to reveal what your heart has been yearning for. And that's something to be afraid of. And when I say afraid, I don't mean to be fearful in the sense of like afraid of God, but to be reverent and take that seriously. That's what that's what uh, Paul is saying is take this seriously because that's our motivation. We want ultimately our hearts to yearn for the heavenly dwelling. So that's my first point. That fear is a legitimate motivation because throughout the Bible, God repeatedly admonishes us not to fear. And yet there are instances where we are to be afraid, like in Proverbs where it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Also in Job, it says wisdom is fear of the Lord. It's not the uh, fear itself that matters. It's who is the object of the fear that matters. And throughout the scriptures, it's not fearing God. It's not fearing man, but it's fearing God. And, it's to take, and what that means is to take him seriously. Let me move on to the second point. God's love as motivation, okay? Not fear and love can actually stand next to one another. In fact, they stand next to each other in these verses. And so as we get, um, I just read verse 11. I was just talking about verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. And this is building Paul's point that ultimately, your ministry as a believer, your job or purpose as a believer is to persuade people to pursue the heavenly dwelling to seek after Christ. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. So in this, Paul, as he's done with the other letters, other letters to the Corinthian church, he's defending his apostleship. He's uh, establishing his credibility. He's basically saying, hey, look, you, you can listen to me because there are other competing apostles, other people who claim that they should be the authority in terms of apostleship, and Paul's defending his own apostleship. Verse 12, we are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. Okay. So what he's explaining there is that it's easy. He he wants to be, give you cause to boast about us. So he doesn't want to, he's not trying to brag, right? And Paul's kind of interesting because he does kind of brag about stuff, but he's saying, he's saying, I want you to brag about me, or in this case, it's Paul and Timothy, um, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and what he is, he's attacking the other apostles and their emphasis on outward behavior. So when it says boast about outward appearance, he's talking about something known as we call a legalism, which is the following of rules. And he's saying, stop listening to people who emphasize following rules and rather look at the heart. And then he says this interesting thing in verse 13. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. And again, Paul is doing this interesting thing. And I've been reading through Acts with, uh, with uh, James and West, and also with my sons, just finished it with um, Caleb and Micah. And there's this moment where Paul is um, being interrogated by King Agrippa and also Festus. And I think Festus says, Paul, you are out of your mind. And Paul says, nope, not out of my mind. I just want to preach the gospel to you. So Paul's defending himself and saying he's not out of his mind. But Paul is saying some crazy things because he is very aggressive in proclaiming the gospel just as he is here. And so what's the point? Paul's like, look, you can call me crazy. Being beside oneself is being out of one's mind. He's like, you can call me crazy and just know that it is for Jesus. It is for the Lord that I am acting crazy. And if I don't act crazy, it's for you. But either way, it's for God. Do you see that? Either way, no matter what, if I act crazy, if I do crazy things and say crazy things, it's for God. And if I don't do them, it's also, it's because I'm restraining myself for your sake. (laughs) Okay, so in every case, Paul's concern is for the Lord. Because, and this is the important thing, because, this is for, the love of Christ controls us. Paul's intrinsic motivation is the love of Christ. And in other translations, it says compelled. And I actually kind of like compelled because the word control just has a very negative connotation. It's as if Paul has no control over himself. But I think that's his point. (laughs) I think that's actually the point, that he doesn't have full control over himself, that the love of Christ is so powerful that it motivates him in this way. And now he explains why. And so let me just first establish that love is this motivation that exists alongside fear. And you could say fear is maybe the base emotion, but above that, and maybe beyond the fear, there is this love of Christ that compels and controls and motivates Paul. And the reason why it says, Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. So let's just pause there. I think we can all agree that Jesus died for all. Okay, or Jesus died. (laughs) The meaning of for all may be disputed. Okay, oftentimes within theological circles, we can argue does for all mean for all people throughout all eternity? Um, But there may be in a precision there that the text is not uh, giving us. And so when I say all, let's just think of it as like a lot. (laughs) Many people, Jesus died for many and he certainly died for, with the intention of saving all. And then it says something interesting. And this has always been a big jump for me. That one has died for all, therefore all have died. What, what just happened? Like, how did that happen? How did, how did Jesus' death mean everyone else died? How is that even possible? I mean, Jesus did die and I'm standing here and you're sitting there. So that can't mean it in the most literal sense. So what is going on with this statement? Let's, I'm going to keep reading. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And so there's a, there's a, there's a really important idea here included alongside death, and that's the idea of resurrection. So whenever we talk about the death of Jesus, you also have to talk about resurrection. They are, they are totally intricately connected and related. So then what, still, what does it mean? For therefore all died. It says, and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died. So let's just think about then. Those who live might no longer live for themselves. I, th- I believe he's talking about followers of Jesus. Okay. And if you are a follower of Jesus, then you have joined with Jesus in his death. You've also died. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. If you were a follower of Jesus, you have joined with Jesus in his death, which means you also join with Jesus in his life. And it gets even better that those who live might no longer live for themselves. So what's it saying about those who have died with Jesus? You used to live for yourself, and now you no longer live for yourself. That's the essence of this new life that we have. So in 16, and I'm going to keep going, I'm going to try to come back to this because I want to allow the rest of the verses to explain what's going on in um, 14 and 15. From now on, therefore... We regard no one according to the flesh. And if you want to think of some synonyms that Paul is using with flesh, you can say body. We regard no one according to the body. You can also say we regard no one according to clay, okay? Or we regard no one according to their earthly dwelling because those are all synonyms that Paul has been building throughout this book about flesh and about uh, this tent, this body that we have. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer Okay, let's pause. What do you mean regarded Christ according to the flesh? Well, based on the flow of what's happening, I'm going to guess, I'm going to say it means that we once regarded Jesus before his death and resurrection. We just saw him as a body. Okay, He's he's just a person. And then once he died and was raised again, he became something different. He wasn't just flesh anymore. He was legitimate as the glorified son of God. Maybe not fully glorified, but a resurrected son of God. So we don't regard him anymore according to the flesh. You don't see him like that anymore. Therefore, and then 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So let me, um, let me this is now our last point, And I'm going to read some of the verses from Hark the Herald Angels Sing. One of the verses goes, mild he lays his glory by, Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Okay, I'm gonna, we're going to camp on that last line. Born to give them second birth. Throughout the scriptures, you have this idea that you can be born again. That's in John chapter 3. And in 2 Corinthians 5, you have this idea of being a new creation. So how does this connect? How is this Christmas song about being a new creation? Well, it's the second birth. And what is the second birth? It's resurrection. Resurrection is the second birth. And what is Jesus saying here is we no longer look at anyone according to first birth. Okay. First birth is the flesh. You don't look at people anymore in first birth. You look at people based on second birth. Because if you're a follower of Jesus, you died to the first birth. (laughs) And now you have second birth. And if you have second birth, that changes your perspective of everything else. Everything else is now second birth. Everything is new creation. Now what does that mean? In, what does that mean in terms of reality? Because we look around and, and, and it's still fragile and broken. But what it's saying is, if, if Christ died and he died for all, and those who've died no longer live for themselves, we live according to the second birth. We live with the reality of the second birth in us. And we see from the perspective of second birth. You don't see the same way anymore. If you saw that way before, that way has died. And you see in a new way. Because you are new. And the, uh, the analogy that I, I think I've, I've shared before, but I just, I just love it. I'm just going to go back to it. Go back to the well. Um, is the way kimchi is made. Okay. Um, and from my understanding, because I have not actually made kimchi. John, have you made kimchi before? okay um, if you, if you have made kimchi, you can correct me on how this is done. Um, but from what I understand, you take napa cabbage and then you um, soak it in a brine solution and with spices and when you, when you soak it in that solution, what you do is you actually you put it in the ground. well, the way it's traditionally done is you put it in the ground and you put it in the ground for three days. <laughs> And in the course of those three days, the chemical composition of the cabbage is altered by the fermentation process. And the cabbage absorbs the, uh, the solution that it's been immersed in. So that it takes on the properties of what it has been baptized into. Okay? That is the word. That is the meaning of the word. It means to immerse. Okay? And so as it's immersed, it takes on spices. Right? Spices become part of this cabbage, and it's, to- it's completely altered. And when you take it out, it is no longer cabbage. It is no longer this flavorless green thing. It is flavorful. It's spicy. Um, and it's permanently so. And that's what it means to join with Christ in his death. That's what it means when Christ died for all and therefore all died— that the intent of that, when you, when you believe in Jesus, you participate in his death and it forever changes you. And you go from being flavorless to being spicy. And it's permanent. And so for some of us, um, it's difficult because, actually maybe most of us, is because if you've gone to church for most of your life, you don't have a reference point of old life. You, don't, you, don't, you think, well, I don't really have a cabbage life. okay? Um, because it says the old has gone. But when you think about this, when you think about old life, I want you to think about it in terms of first birth. You have a life of first birth. You have a life in the flesh. And what a life in the flesh means, according to this passage, is it's a life that's centered on yourself. Okay? Because it says that those who live may no longer live for themselves. All of you have learned from your first birth how to live for yourself. You have tactics and strategies that help you to survive your childhood that you retain today as part of your first birth. And you can choose to live in your first birth at any time. Even as a Christian, you can choose, even in your second birth, you can choose the old life. You can choose the first birth. But what Paul is saying is, you don't do that anymore. You don't have, that's actually not who you are. You don't have to live according to first birth. You can live according to second birth because that's what it means to be a new creation. That's what Christ did for you when you were immersed with him and soaked for 3 days and then brought out of the ground. It's permanent. That's who you are. And then how does that relate then to our families? You no longer relate to your family members through the first birth. That's what that means. You relate and you see your family members through the second birth. And so um, that's how God rewrites history because the only way you rewrite history is to end it. And God rewrites history is by ending it through death and by raising it new. And so this Christmas season, you know, let's just be very specific. Um, You're probably going to get some presents you're not thrilled with. Okay. And depending on your attitude toward the giver, that, that's actually going to frame how you see the present, right? Your, your attitude towards the person giving it is going to frame how you see the gift. And especially for those relatives whom you have in which you receive a present that you experience disappointment because when you see the person, you feel disappointment. You're going to want to rewrite that history because it is possible in that moment to be like, Lord, I will no longer see this person by first birth. I will see them by the second. And it actually doesn't matter If this person is a Christian or not, okay? Because a lot of us are like, well, this person's not a Christian, blah, 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 blah. We can, you know, think, uh, you know, in Jocelyn's story, like this is, you know, pre, you know, uh, dramatic story for Nathan, right? But the point, it's not, that's not the point. Because when Jesus looks at us, he sees us by second birth. He sees us with hope. He sees us created in his image. That's how he sees us. He actually doesn't see us according to the first. He sees us according to the second birth. He says this is going to a new creation. And you know what it takes to do that? It requires faith. That's what the Christian life is. It is by faith. Because we are looking forward to a heavenly dwelling that we don't have yet. Everything in the Christian life proceeds by faith. So when you see your family member and you see them in the first birth, you are walking by sight. You are not walking by faith. So would you walk by faith today? because you've been redeemed into the second birth and you are able to see the people whom are closest to you according to the second. Because the old is gone and the new has come. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for the Christmas season that it is about birth. And Lord, would you open our eyes and hearts today? the power and the glory of the second birth of death and resurrection thank you God that you Jesus died for all and that in doing so all died because all died we are now free to no, to no longer live for ourselves and even, even if we've grown up in the church we, can, we do not have to choose anymore to live according to the first birth to our survival tactics from our past but to live according to the second as new creations. And so Lord, would you open our eyes to not only see others and the people around us in the second birth, but also to see ourselves in the second birth. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.